It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, we react to Jose Mourinho's anger as Roma are beaten by Sevilla who make it a magnificent seven in the Europa League final last night. We'll look ahead to a massive game at Wembley this weekend, the first Manchester derby in an FA Cup final in history. Can Manchester United upset the form book? We'll talk about their links to buy Mason Mount from Chelsea and his teammate Mateo Kovacic's likely move to Manchester City as well as our reaction to Serena Wiegmann's Lionesses squad for this summer's Women's World Cup. This is the game. Hello, welcome back to The Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wozencroft alongside Molly Hudson, Tom Roddy and Gregor Robertson. Big week. We're going to be looking ahead very shortly to the FA Cup final. There's some big moves on the horizon as well, managerial and player-wise. But let's begin with last night's events in Budapest very, very quickly because Sevilla came past Roma in the Europa League final. How can you ever count against Sevilla in this competition? They extend their record to seven wins. It came, of course, on a penalty shootout with Gonzalo Montiel scoring the winning penalty. He also scored the winning penalty for Argentina in the World Cup final, so a couple of feathers in his cap. But it's seven wins out of seven in Europa League finals for Sevilla. They're sitting 11th in La Liga with one game to go. Their manager, Jose Luis Mendilibar, was only managing in his sixth European fixture ever. After a long coaching career as well, I think he's just slightly younger than Mourinho. And it was just one of those days, wasn't it, where you thought everything was going to go in their favour. I probably think they were the better side as well. And it wasn't really a great spectacle either, was it, Gregor? No. I mean, there's reading a lot of pieces in the build-up to this about Josie. There's still a place for him in the game. <laughs> Josie's football. Elite. kind of Yeah. But then you kind of watch the, watch the game itself and the reality of the experience of watching... This kind of Jose Mourinho uh, performance is not—it's not what dreams are made of, is it? I think it was 146 minutes of action, uh, just bitty kind of spiteful football almost. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was reading a really interesting thing that this season, 13 red cards have been shown to members of the Roma bench, whether the coaches or substitutes. And I think that says a lot about you know we saw, we saw that all the kind of antics on the touchline and just doing anything anything that they can to break up the game and to win. When it went to penalty kicks, it might have worked, but it ultimately didn't. And I'm not sure there'll be that much sympathy for Roma or, or Jose Mourinho. 
tough job for Anthony Taylor, English ref out in the middle. Uh, afterwards, in the car park, we saw images of Jose Mourinho saying that he was an effing disgrace. Uh, we saw Jose throw his loser's medal up to a kid in the crowd as well. Doesn't want silvers. You know, he's still all about winning trophies, Jose Mourinho. But, um, you know, his future's kind of in doubt at Roma, which is quite interesting. He says, I want to stay at the club, but my players deserve more. I deserve more. I don't want to fight anymore for that. I'm tired of being a coach, a communicator, and the club's spokesperson. So clearly, there are issues for Mourinho at Roma. But ultimately, I still think he sees himself as kind of an elite-level, top-level coach who should be coaching teams that are trying to win the Champions League rather than Europa League. And that's why he's maybe always got one eye kind of looking to the left. Without a doubt. Yeah, he definitely sees himself as an elite coach. And and also, I think, and and perhaps this this could be be fair when you look at Roma's history and the fact they've reached two European finals in the last two seasons and they hadn't done that in years and years before Mourinho came in but at the same time the way he sort of decides to start Dybala up front and the way he he talks after the game and the way he approaches the games suggests this feeling of of David versus Goliath and and I am the one who can I am the slingshot essentially. Mm. I was thinking afterwards because the way he's speaking suggests he's leaving mm. and they have had a success with him there. They've had a, a successful period, but when Mourinho goes through clubs and leaves, it's exhausting and you have to clubs have to pick up the pieces afterwards so it's not it's never a a progression and then you develop from there it's always taking a shot experiencing the difficulties shall we say that that come with that and then hoping that it works out because you almost have to restart when he leaves yeah yeah. We've we've spoken loads on this on the podcast about about various clubs and and a lot about Brighton and you just think about the way that when Graham Potter left Brighton, Roberto De Zerbi comes in. Everything it's progression, mm. progression all the time. Whereas I don't think Roma will be able to do that now. Uh, he's a kind of character that's pretty abrasive, and yet I still watch what he's able to do as a cup manager and think. It's going to be a big international job available next summer, most likely. Will Jose Mourinho want to take that? We know he loves this country, doesn't he? I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I thought you were talking about Brazil. No, I mean, possibly. But Jose Mourinho, I think, is a cup manager. But he's a very good cup manager. Because if you look at their their league position, for example, they're sick. But they're only sick because Juventus have been deducted 10 points. Uh, Otherwise, they'd be seventh in Serie A. So... You know, uh, for me, he's not a league manager anymore. He's not going to win you league titles, but six or seven games, David versus Goliath mentality could be worse. I would be astonished if <laughs> you, you started with the, the and, and we didn't really give enough focus to this. I mean, that that the footage of what happened in the car park of the stadium where he's addressing Anthony Taylor is absolutely horrendous uh, behaviour, especially. I mean, you're, you're probably talking well over an hour after the final whistle. The FA would would not 
stand. I can't believe we're talking about yes, this. Yes, yeah, yeah. Players being highly mischievous. Uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> I am, in a way, I think we've got an obsession with Jose Mourinho in this country. And that's why I think his name would be mentioned. And I think ultimately people still see him as a winner. International football is not club football. It's not Champions League football. You don't have to put out a beautiful footballing side. You need to put out a winning side. And Jose Mourinho has done plenty of that. But yes, I am jesting. I, I think Ju- that will happen. Just a little bit. I think that will happen, not with England, but I think that he, he will be international, international fo- football will be his next thing because he's restless. He no, I, I completely agree. He doesn't feel like... He feels like he's still an elite manager and if you're doing... That's like another avenue of elite football if you're if you're competing for World Cups and European Championships yeah. and whatnot, that's his next step I think because there's only so long he can find the kind of drive and the like the pessimism mm. <laughs> to kind of to to compete in the second and third level of European football and when when what he's always been is someone competing for Champions League Last word Molly Hudson on Sevilla Roma whatever you notice whatever you want to talk about including Jose to be honest, Hugh, I thought the game might never end. I, um, <laughs> I, I I saw someone on Twitter saying, like, this is the most typical game that started in May and ended in June, um, and it just went on and on and on. I have to say, I am, I am a bit of a Mourinho fan, and maybe that's because I sort of grew up in his, like, golden era when he was absolutely peak Mourinho. But I, I sort of tuned into this game t- to watch him almost as much as I did have a real care about where this Europa League trophy actually went. And I think he is box office and, you know, he still is. But I think it was it was almost like this is quite enjoyable watching one game of this in a one-off sort of scenario. I was I was slightly grateful that I don't have to watch the Syria and Roma every week because I think the novelty might wear off quite quickly if if you had to, to watch that every week. Indeed, indeed. And Look, you guys will have your opinions on whether you wanted to see, you know, Mandela Bar lift the first European trophy after a long uh, career at maybe the smaller clubs in Spain uh, versus, if you like, the, the true Goliath in terms of the managerial matchup, Jose Mourinho. So maybe it was nice to see him with a medal around his neck, even though it means another Europa League trophy to put in the museum for Sevilla. Unbelievable. Seven out of seven in finals. Incredible. Um, Up next, let's talk about one of Jose Mourinho's former teams because Saturday sees the first Manchester derby in an FA Cup final. The Premier League winners and Champions League finalists Manchester City need their victory to stay on course for the treble, of course. But Manchester United are looking to complete a domestic cup double after they won the Carabao Cup at Wembley earlier on in the season. United finished 14 points and 36 goals behind City. I like that number, 36 goals for City uh, in the Premier League. So it's a big task for United, but we all know what it means. Paul Hurst, of course, our Manchester correspondent, joins us on the game podcast. Huge one for the fans of both clubs. But what's the significance, do you feel, of this fixture in terms of maybe United's ability to send a message that they do have what it takes to challenge and compete with City throughout the course of next season. How important a day is it for them in particular? Well, yeah, I agree here. It's a, it's a huge day for, for United for, for two reasons. Like you said, it, it would demonstrate that they can go toe-to-toe with City in, in big matches and they beat them earlier on in the season. So I suppose that'll help them in, in that respect to Old Trafford, even if it was a little bit of a dodgy goal that allowed them to win. But the, the biggest prize here is the fact that they can deny City the treble. And, you know, United 
ever since City were taken over, United have always had two things over City, regardless of how much success City have had. They've always been able to say, you know, where's your Champions League and where's your treble? You know, we did that in 99 and and City could do that this season. They could match it. So if United were to, to stop that happening, you know, that would be something that the United fans wouldn't forget for, you know, forever, basically. They, they would rub City fans' noses in it for, for many years to come. So I think that'll be in the back of the mind of the the fans and the and the manager and the players as well. What do you think? Gregor, in terms of Manchester United's sending a message out, I mean, how important is it? Because I think the stuff for the club is very personal, you know, and I get it. For the fans of Manchester United and for the players, you know, stopping City from winning the treble, as Hursty points out, probably the number That's one number thing one, yeah. number one thing on the list. But there is going to be a wider context for the what happens after this game um, if you are beaten by City, or is that already entrenched? City are the club in Manchester now. I don't know, because I, I don't feel that yet. I certainly feel under Eric Ten Hag, Manchester United are re-emerging. But what you don't want is the arm to come out as the little, almost like now the little brother being held at arm's length as they swing furiously their arms at thin air. You know, you don't want that. You want you want almost to say, yeah, I'm coming for you. So I think it's, it is important in a wider context that United send that message. Yeah, I think, look, I think Eric Ten Hag said that in Henry Winter's interview. No, that that's a big thing stopping the treble but we've got we've, we're building our own project as well and to win two trophies in, in one season and finishing the Champions League it'd be like it's already been a big step forward but that would be kind of on the line that I think you know United are the real deal under Ten Hag but I also don't think you can read too much into this one game because there's going to be a big big changes in the summer and he said that again in, in the interview that we need to you know, we need to spend quite a lot of money to to come up to the, their level which is the truth of the matter they're not of the same level as Manchester City so yes they're on the way back yes this would be a big statement but I think the summer and the changes that will be seen and a kind of a belief that United can challenge City for the league next season is the kind of you know the more important thing long term Do you think Kirsty that, that Manchester United can stop City this weekend I know you mentioned the victory that they had throughout the season I think Wembley is a very different place I think Manchester City are in a different mode right now as well you know when you've got the carrot of two games to get through and a, a, a treble which would be absolutely historic for your club but maybe even surpass what Manchester United have done um, this game does take on a, a different complexion um, footballing wise do you think Manchester United will have a plan here we know that Anthony Martial is going to be out we know that Anthony is a doubt and and so maybe do we see a almost a tactical switch from Ten Hag? Maybe a plan up his sleeve uh, to negate what what City do well. Well, yeah, he's going to have to he's going to have to change his his formation, his, his team, isn't he? Because you would imagine that either Anthony or Anthony Martial would have been in that team, but he might have to start Garnacho now, which which I, I'd love to see. I, I think he's he's fantastic player. I think he's you know he's shown his worth off the bench, and that's obviously against you know more tired legs, but he's still a a very unpredictable, very fearless player. So, I think if you've got him running at a, you know, maybe I don't know, Carl Walker, whoever's going to play at right back, it's not going to be easy because Walker is a, you know, he's a master at that, isn't he? But you know, it's just that little bit of unpredictable bit unpredictability that Garnacho brings that could make the difference. Um, I think they are United are in a better place to to actually put up a fight in these kind of games now, just because of the the experience of. Of the key, some of the key players in there, you know, Casemiro's never lost a, a domestic final in his career. 
you know, I, I know that the Copdel Ray is obviously not as competitive as as the FA Cup would be, but that kind of mentality means a lot. I think it's the same with Rafa Ran as well. He brings that to the to the team, so they'll be, be glad that he's back. But they won't have much of the ball, will the United? You know, they, they'll just have to accept that, and I think they they have accepted that in certain matches this season and come out on top as well. So it'll just be about being patient and getting ready to take it on the counter. Because you know, in terms of a possession based game, they'd they'd stand no chance against um, against City, and I think they might have to. You know, sometimes they might have to play it long as well, straight out from the back, just like they did against Brighton in the semi final. Because sometimes when they played it out, it's just you know, you know it's like a hot potato, isn't it? No, no one wants the ball, and with De Gea as well, he's not too great with the, the ball at his feet. So they, they might have to go a bit more direct this time. So they're underdogs for that reason, aren't they? That they're just not. City have got everything in their locker, haven't they? They can play. You can play possession based. They can, or they can go. You can go more direct. Uh, use the pace. Um, switch the team about. Players different, playing in different positions. So, yeah, you know, United are in a better position than they have been in previous years. But you know, the City are a, a favourites for a reason. The transformation of <clears throat> of Rashford this season has been one, and and it's easy to kind of forget the the difficulties that Eric Ten Hag's faced this year and as Gregor said the progression that they've had it's so long ago now the Ronaldo Piers Morgan interview was this season he's had to handle the the Mason Greenwood situation as well transforming Marcus Rashford from five goals last season and I know he had his injury difficulties but to 30 goals this year and statistics would suggest you stop Rashford you stop United is that fair Hursty and um how do you think, does Pep approach it in that way or does he think, no, we play our own game? I, th- I think definitely he does He, he does. You know, concentrate on his own team a lot mm. more than, than the opposition. But I, I agree with you, you know, it's, Rashford is the main threat and that's that's one of the one of the feathers in, in Ten Hag's cap this season that he's turned him into an elite striker, an elite forward, certainly compared to where he was last season. But yeah, Bruno Fernandes had a decent season as well. But I do agree that that Rashford is the is, is the main threat. And you know, it's funny, isn't it? You mentioned the Ronaldo interview there. You know, that seems like a a few seasons ago, doesn't it? It seems ages ago. And you know, I think removing Ronaldo from that team has just just kind of unleashed. A, you know, it's just helped a lot of players in that side, mm. and Rashford's certainly one of them. Mm. You know, you don't. I always thought when Ronaldo was playing for them that he was just kind of pass pass the ball to to him. You know, he always wanted it, and you know because of his his legend, you know his his status. Even if he was in a position where he wasn't going to score, or it was nigh impossible that he was going to score, that a player felt he had to pass to him. You know, just because of the the legend that he was and the status that he had. So I just think it's it's helped a lot of players find a lot more space and a lot more kind of freedom. Bruno Fernandes is, is another one. You know, start of the season, he was he saw Ronaldo dropping into that pocket where Fernandes was playing, and they had no one in front of him. And Bruno was almost like saying, "You know, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in the box. You know, you're the guy that finishes it. I'm the guy that sets it up." But because Ronaldo was getting so frustrated, he was just like dropping in and you know having, having you know just wasn't wasn't scoring goals. So, but yeah, and Rashford is has been one of the beneficiaries as well. So. Yeah, I think if if they are going to win the match, it'll probably come from from him. Yeah, and and 
as well, Hursty, we started this by talking about the, the treble and everyone, we will focus on that, everyone will focus on that, understandably. But in terms of motivation, on, on both sides of the pitch... The United players aren't really going to be motivated by stopping. They're not. They're not. Majority of them aren't these legacy fans who who care so much yeah. about that. It's going. To, their focus is going to be more on the FA Cup, isn't it? And and on the City side, is the motivation the treble, or will it be more the Champions League? Well, I think if you look at someone like Rashford, for example, he will be he will be motivated motivated by by rubbing City's nose by by stopping them. So I think for some players it will be that motivation, but it's interesting. We were speaking to um, Rafa Varane this week uh, for an interview that's going in the paper uh, tomorrow, and he was saying he was saying we just need to focus on ourselves, and there is an element of that as well that you know don't don't get kind of like dragged into too, the emotional side of it too much because that could end up could have distracted you from from your game plan. You you are. The team, the United team, are good enough to win this match if they, you know, if they execute the game plan to perfection, which they'll have to. So yeah, I'd, there is an element of just don't get kind of swept up in the emotion of it too much, and because you know, and an FA Cup victory, like Greg said, two cups in in one year and finishing third would be a big success for United, considering considering how poorly they were last year you know they how poorly they finished last year zero goal difference last year 58 points um and that's that was shocking really for united and 75 points this season so it's, it's a big improvement but you know the the fa cup would be the icing on the cake for them but finally Hursty, i just wanted to reflect on what eric ten Hag had to say to henry winter in the times um and how big this game is for him personally in terms of the money um, because he says, I need players. He obviously wants Manchester United to improve next year, but very clear signals sent out to whoever the owners of the club might be in terms of when this transfer window starts. You know, Manchester United need to get cracking. We'll talk about their links with Mason Mount a little bit later on. But does he almost need to win the FA Cup for, if it is to be the Glazers on their way out, to spend some money? Or maybe whoever's coming in to kind of uh, make it a little bit more urgent in terms of getting this uh, takeover done? That squad doesn't need huge work doing to it still, doesn't it? And um, and then you're right in in the in the interview that that Ten Hag did with with Henry Wincy was saying that we did spend a lot last season, but you know it, it was it was needed and it's needed again this summer because they need a need a striker. You know, Anthony Marshall's out again, as you were saying. You know, how many he's, he's missed a, a whole lot of games this this season. I was looking at his injury list and it's hip injury, back injury. Hamstring, illness, and, and a couple of other things. It's that's, that's a lot for one season, isn't it? So you can't build, you know. And every player is different, and you know, it's it's no slight on him, but you can't as a player. But you can't you can't rely on him, can you? As Marshall as a as a player, so you imagine that he'd have to go. That so they'd have to sign not just an elite striker, you know, like Harry Kane or Osimhen from from Napoli, but they'd have to sign a youngster as well or someone to kind of as a backup because Mar- you can't learn Marshall um, and then you need a you need a midfielder you need someone to to compete with Christian Eriksen because Eriksen's probably played a lot more matches than, than you would have thought than he thought he would have done this season uh, even though he's been injured for quite a lot of it so you need another midf- you need a midfield there you need a backup keeper I imagine um, someone to put pressure on De Gea because he's been up and down this season shot stopping fantastic but 
it, playing it out from the back, he's, he's not the greatest, as we know. And then if if Harry Maguire goes, they'll need another centre half. So you tot all that up, I tot all that up, and it comes to you know we're talking over two hundred million, aren't we here? So you know, whoever's in charge, whether takeover goes through, whether you know whoever takes over is you know they, they will have to spend a lot of money to to get that team even like one step closer to where City are and Arsenal are in terms of the quality and they've got to sell well as well. United have been terrible at selling players over the last few mm-hmm. years. And they they've they've acknowledged that themselves. They've they've hung, they've hung on to players for too long. You know, Phil Jones a, a good example signed a four year contract the week after Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took over as interim manager and he's barely played since. You know, so that's and he'd had a lot of injury troubles before. You know, great player when he's fit, but he's not been fit for ages. So you've got to be ruthless, haven't you? You've got to mm. say, thanks, Phil. You know, you've got to go. And then a lot of the youngsters as well uh, have gone for for tiny fees when they could have probably got 10 million from the year before. You know, Anthony Alang has not done much this season. They probably got 10, 15 million for him last summer. That would have gone a long way to boosting this kitty. So if you look at, you know, McTominay, Maguire, Henderson, Alanga, Van der Beek, Tellez, Bailly, all those players. If you sell well, you could get another hundred million from that group of players. If you find a buyer for him who's willing to pay the wages, that's another mm. issue, isn't it? But um, so that, that that will prove key whether they can they can supplement that kitty that they've already got with another hundred million in sales because that brings you another couple of top players. So it it will be a, a very busy summer for United. Okay, Paul Hurst, thank you for joining us on the game podcast looking ahead to the FA Cup final. Thanks. So, how do we think the FA Cup final is going to go there? Molly, Molly, I'll start with you. How do you see it panning out? I It sort of reminds me of um, what we were just saying earlier on about, about Mourinho. You wonder if maybe there's, there's a part of Manchester United, of course, that will not want to be that team that's kind of negative and sitting back or whatever, but it feels like maybe that that might be a way at least to try and stop Manchester City. I think for me, I think that just the way City have kind of approached this this second half of the season, really, that they just look very, very hard to stop. And I think it, it's hard to see, especially as Hursty just listed all of the problems in the squad there and, you know, the amount of people that probably need to be moved on um, and people that need to come in in the summer. I think when you just look at the two projects at the clubs right now, it, it, it's very hard to see Manchester City not winning that game. Guys, help me out here. Someone <laughs> give me a little bit of joy going into this game. Do we believe that Manchester United can spring a surprise? Well, look, the the, the performance against Brighton and the semi would, should give them some, I don't know, some hope because they're playing against a team who have just as much dominance of the ball. Yeah, they're not, they've not got the same quality, but they... You know they had to play a kind of a, a fairly conservative game, and they had to get the noses in front and hold on to it. You know set pieces and all this. This is not the only way they're going to look to play, but they score from set pieces. They've got to put, play with a real threat on the counter attack, and they've got to win the midfield battle. And that's not going to be easy. That's mm. we, we spoke about this before, and it's Casemiro's been brilliant, but who's going to play alongside him? And they've been that's been an issue sometimes against Manchester City as well in the past. It's you, know, I, you look at if if we play Wan Bissaka and. Shaw, I think that they can on their day they can handle City out wide. It's about the gaps in between them and the centre halves and playing and the people who play in front of them. That's where City are going to be the biggest threat for United. So how they get that balance right between the central defenders and it's, it's going to be two players in front of them 
How they get that balance rate is going to be key. I think Fred might play alongside Casemiro. I, th- I think the only thing is, is, is if City are distracted. I'm afraid the fact that United of this is United's big day. This is United's focus, and it has been ever since they got to this final. Whereas City, like I was saying before, I would imagine a lot of these players, like Jack Grealish, has spoken quite a lot Harland has spoken about it it's it's more about the Champions League than than the treble for those players and the manager so I think they'll have an eye on next week and also you can't forget that in the 20 games before they won the Premier League there was only two that they didn't win and that was a way to Bayern and Real Madrid so they are the absolute juggernaut that we are describing them and everyone knows they are right now but they've also been celebrating <laughs> that Premier League title and they're now going to be focusing on the Inter and the Champions League final. From a tactical perspective as well, it'll be interesting to see how Varane, I think Varane has the biggest job of the day dealing with Haaland and Varane and Rashford will be the key players for United. Rodri Gundogan and De Bruyne might have something to say about that. I think, you know, you did talk about winning the midfield battle. And I think, you know, even if you throw Fred's energy in there, you know, the quality and the emphasis there on Casemiro and Eriksen, if Eriksen's pushed a little bit further on, sometimes he's not overly involved in the game, particularly if, you you know, the opposition have the ball a lot. It's almost a waste of a position. So do you play with Garnacho? Um, do, do, you know, I don't think Veghorst will start because of the speed that you'd probably need on the counter-attack. But if Rashford plays through the middle, do you put Bruno Fernandes on the right and Garnacho or Sancho? Or You can mix it up some way. Maybe Garnacho and Sancho as your wingers, Rashford through the middle, Eriksen as the number 10. That gives you maybe more of a threat on the counter-attack. But um, I think it'll be tricky. Uh, that's an understatement, really. Um, but I do think against Manchester City over the past few seasons they have been able Manchester United if you like to bring the game to their level somehow and I think mainly that is kind of um, the path of of most resistance Uh, Manchester United have just gone in with it with a little bit more determination and managed to sway results in their favour against Manchester City Um, because the quality obviously there is there is a gap there and you know I hate to say this game needs to be one in the trenches but maybe a player like Fred does win a game like this for you you know just bringing that added tenacity I mean I'm literally clinging at straws here (laughs) um, clutching at straws here but I think there's still a chance for Manchester United I do think it will be closer than than some people think yeah and the the problem is if it isn't if it isn't as close and you end up with a Man City Watford score from a few years ago then I mean Th- you can't it, even think about that, you, can you? It's not you, you mean you don't want to? But <laughs> it, no, all I'm saying is that's the that's the worst case, case scenario, scenario, and yeah. the reaction afterwards is kind of catastrophic, isn't it? But regardless of any of that, I think you would reflect on this year as real progress for Man United. And I was thinking about it earlier that in the past few weeks we've been dissecting Arsenal's end to the campaign. And the truth is that teams sit down at this stage of the year, reflect on their season, and 
I think Arsenal would would probably think we weren't we weren't quite ready to win the Premier League. We weren't quite ready to go toe to toe with Man City. In truth, that's a huge jump. Man United would see this year as a huge transition period. As I referenced earlier, the fact that Ronaldo saga happened this year. They've had to handle the Mason Greenwood issue and during that period, during this whole period, they have had to transition to Eric Ten Hag's style as well and and after a, a awfully turbulent few years. So I think they would see this as huge progress and the building on it that's why Eric Ten Hag's been so keen to talk about transfers and and that interview that he did in the Times on on Monday I would, I would implore anyone to to read it because it's it's fascinating especially I think one of the key things that he talks about which I found fascinating was actually his backstory and his his father owning an estate agents and almost him learning to be a manager, the basics of being a manager from his father and, and the employees, the 100 employees that he had in his his businesses and the unity, that the, the more you have that unity, the more you will go together and, and you only need to look back to the beginning of the season and when they lost to Brentford in horrendous fashion and the, the famous... The famous eight was eight and a half miles the next day that they did, and the fact Ten Hag did it with them, it was a it was a punishment, but it wasn't a slap around the back of the head and don't do it again. It was he was showing he was with them the whole time. Yeah, I quite like that from the interview. He was mm. saying that I hate managers who are front and center when they win, and then when they lose, it's pointing the finger at the players. And he did you know he did keep getting kind of return to unity, and you've seen like. You've seen United change in terms of the. We've spoken about this all season, the culture and the sort of, you know, the togetherness and the work rate and all those things that are like making them a far more successful team. But they have still had those chinks, those kind of off days. And you know, I instantly recoiled when Tom said, "If it's a you know Watfordish score, and it's not going to be Watfordish score, but they've happened against City twice, four one and six three, and it's not beyond the realms like that." Mm. often those big pressure games in fact when they've not really quite kind of lived up to what they're capable of so I'm not saying that's going to happen but it's important that Man United make a kind of stay in the game as well for as long as possible and the thing that they've done in in the past in these games and they did against Brighton is if 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 they're successful is stay in the game get the noses in front just win you know certain moments that just change the trajectory of the game the goals that change, change the game and then City have got something else that they, they need to try and do, you know. Yeah, the the, the reference to to Watford was more, was more of a worst case scenario, and the reflection on the season as a whole could still be positive. But at the same time, United have it in them to have that off day, and City have it in them to to have that that kind of performance as well. Uh, score predictions. Let's do it. Uh, Molly Hudson. Two 0 to City. Haaland. Both goals. Yeah, you didn't even have to say both goals. Tuning in City, Harland. That's all that matters. Yeah, okay. Gregor? 3 1 City. Come on, Tom, help me out. Well, I've got to go 6 0 City now, really, <laughs> don't I? To be honest, I'm going to. 
go 2-1 United. Beautiful. I'm going to go 3-2 Manchester United. Okay. Extra time. Before we move on, I do want to talk about a few transfers very, very quickly. Uh, and we're going to start with one concerning Manchester United. That's Mason Mount from Chelsea. And pretty much this is really a Chelsea conversation because Manchester United reportedly have reached an agreement on personal terms with Mason Mount. They still need to agree a fee with Chelsea over a, a move for the England midfielder. But then Chelsea starting their clear out by giving permission to Manchester City to open talks with midfielder Mateo Kovacic, um, which a year left on his deal, Kovacic, I get why they're allowing that. But my word, Chelsea selling two players immediately to if you like rivals in the league, I know they're not going for the title or anything like that, but a top four place they are. They're giving them their players to other big teams in the league. So what do you make of Chelsea doing that? And also, what do you make of Kovacic possibly going to City, Mount possibly going to United? Molly, I'll start with you. I think, and um, I'm sure Tom will will confirm this, having sort of dealing with this day in and day out, but the whole club at Chelsea at the moment is just a mess, isn't it, really? And I th- I think it's it it's kind of sad because kind of growing up you you always saw that like heart of Chelsea was despite all of their spending and the whole Abramovich era they they always had kind of those those homegrown players coming through kind of being part of the team and to to kind of see the way that Mason Mount has has fallen out of favour obviously he's had his injury problems as well but it it's just it just feels sort of very anti-Chelsea and um, particularly the Kovacic one. I sort of understand it in a sense of, as you say, he's he's coming to the end of his contract. He's probably not going to start for Manchester City, but it just feels a little bit counterintuitive to strengthen your rivals in any kind of way. You know, e- even if it's somebody that isn't going to go on and, you know, rip up trees for them, it, it's still a bit odd. So I think... It's just going to be a very, very big, big summer for Chelsea, isn't it? And I guess how they kind of get through the sheer amount of players that they have at the club and find out who to keep and who not to keep is certainly going to be interesting. First of all, I think I'd pick you up, you on the expectations for next season. I, I think maybe not expectations, but targets. I think they will they will see themselves as a Premier League title contender and they will they will expect themselves to be up there because yeah, I don't, of I don't for two reasons. themselves as I mean let's add a dose of reality into no, this but you've just, they're, they're you've, winning the title next year they're not getting close to winning the title next year yeah but you've just you've just said it in the context of strengthening rivals no but this is so, my point yeah so 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 why would you strengthen rivals if you're going to be a Premier League title contender no I, I, this is my point on city I don't think they're necessarily rivals at this point in time although clearly they're a team at your end of the table. Manchester United, much more so. Well, on the but on on Mount, I think it's been. Remember this contract that he's got at the moment that expires next summer. He signed before he'd played a single game for Chelsea's senior side. He signed it that summer after the derby. That's incredible. It is, mm. and and part of it is and farcical. Yes. He wasn't given an extension. Incredible, yeah. yeah. That's well, a massive, massive oversight. Yes, and and part of that, which I think is a naivety, comes from the previous management in thinking this guy joined us at six years old, absolutely loves Chelsea, is steeped in it, 
and will f- the belief was that he'll finish his career here. So this will be the easiest contract we ever do. And during that period, he was player of the year, two years running. He was adored by Thomas Tuchel. Before that, he was adored by Frank Lampard. And Gareth Southgate obviously picks him all of the time. And actually, there was... um, When he was... I know Maurizio Sarri wasn't wasn't the most rated Chelsea manager during his time here, but when he was Chelsea manager and he saw what Mount was doing at Derby, he wanted him back at Chelsea, but they couldn't they couldn't make that happen. So you've got this long list of managers who really, really liked him, and of course we know now Mauricio Prochettino would like him to stay. Graham Potter really liked him, but there's been a I was going to say a fall down in that relationship. There's been a, an absolute collapse, and this is really, sadly, the end of the end of the road in his relationship with the club. And I, th- I think it will be a great piece of business for whoever gets him. Man United. I think Man United, Liverpool, Arsenal, and Bayern Munich are the are the serious contenders for him, and. It wouldn't surprise me if he'd agreed personal terms with all of them because that's how these things happen. Mm. The big issue is going to be agreeing terms with Chelsea. And, and the truth is that they Chelsea need to do it for financial fair play reasons and not just that because they want to reinvest money for Pochettino's squad. So they need to do this and they really they need to do it early. We've said this all, all year since the... They took this approach in, in the transfer market that academy players are going to hold the most value for mm. them. So Ruben Loftus-Cheek, I'm sure, will leave. Just seen that Levi Colwell has been a £30 million bid from Brighton, which they turned down. But I bet you if they gave him the right money, they would accept that. So I don't think so. They've got no. to keep Colwell. Yeah. I think... I think At least the, one season, give him an opportunity. He looks great. If it's the right money, it's because it's the same yeah, thing. It. It's the it, same it, reason. It, it's, pure, it's pure million, profit. But, it's pure profit. Yeah, yeah. So... We said this like before January as well. This is gonna. This could see sort of a tearing out of that. You know, Molly said, grow, "Growing up, uh, remember Chelsea being, you know, having academy players. Maybe showing your age there a little bit, Molly, because it's quite. It's, it's a fairly. It's a fairly, new, it's a fairly yeah. new phenomenon. But it has been for the last four or five years at least. Like this has been a, a thing that Chelsea fans have been able to hold on to through all the tumult. And there's a good chance that part of it's going to be kind of ripped out. And I just cannot believe that Mason Mount. Mason Mount. It's very hard to believe he would want to leave Chelsea as well, if, unless the club had changed in such a remarkable fashion over the past twelve months. So it's a, it's, a, it's an absolutely disastrous move for for uh, for Chelsea. I, I personally would love it if Mason Mount went to Manchester United. I think there are far too many people who are disparaging about his talents. I think for his age, what he's done already uh, in football shows you that he he must be you know quite some player. I think, yeah, he, he kind of got a bad rap for constantly being picked by his managers. I, I guess the I guess the viewers at home couldn't necessarily see it, but I think all the managers, all the coaches, the ones that have been winning trophies, have, including the England manager Gareth Southgate, for quite some time. So I don't really see how Mason Mount can be that bad a player, although he clearly hasn't had the best season of his career. I think it's almost a good time for someone to be buying him because, firstly, he's going to have hunger, want to prove himself, want to get back out there winning trophies... 
Um, but also, because of the last season, the price is probably not as high as it could have been. You're probably saving yourself 20 million quid. I mean, I know there are some reports that Chelsea want as much as 80 million. I think other places say 60 million. And I think 60 million would be quite a bargain, to be fair. I think it'd be, I think, well, one year left on the contract. I think it would yeah. be. But that that's the reason, Hugh, why I was listing off the managers, including Sari, to basically say that every single person who has worked with Mason Mount has has wanted to work with Mason Mount and to keep him. And one of the thir- first things Thomas Tuchel looked to do when he got to Bayern Munich was to get him over there because he saw the potential situation. And he has, has a, he has had not the best of seasons this year, but I can't think of any Chelsea player who has had a good season. That has been a theme of this turbulent year so it's not been the best environment to work within mm. and at the same time you reflect and and also I, I would expect that this situation off the field that has got us to this point would also impact that as well and before that he was player of the year the, the previous two seasons he scored 11 goals and provided 10 assists in the season before this one and he is also he has also proved to be a, a model professional and actually mm. i think he would really really suit the culture that eric ten hag is trying to instill at manchester united he one of his one of his big big mates as well i know this isn't this isn't necessarily a huge factor in in decisions of where players go but one of his big mates is Luke Shaw from England camp he gets on really really well with Luke Shaw so I think it would be a smart piece of business for Man United to do Uh, Just one other I guess transfer related piece of news Um, uh, Thomas Tuchel not just interested in Mason Mount apparently Declan Rice as well West Ham United midfielder just quickly to touch on this Uh, reports are that they've had a conversation over a prospective move. I know West Ham United, of course, have the Europa Conference League final to focus on at this point in time. I'm, I'm quite excited by the prospect of an England midfielder of, of the level of Declan Rice playing for a club as big as Bayern Munich. It, 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 I mean, I think reports also suggest that Arsenal still the front runners for his signature, but it would be a very difficult team to turn down. It would be. Yeah, it would be. And the thing is, it depends what it depends partially what motivates you because you can go to Bayern Munich. My my understanding is that the the offer actually from Bayern Munich is more lucrative than the Arsenal one. So you can have a little bit more money in your back pocket. You can probably, almost certainly actually, end your career with more honours because mm. of the way Bayern dominate the Bundesliga and are very, very often one of the final four in the Champions League. So... The, the potential for a, a legacy and, and honours is is possibly greater at Bayern than, than Arsenal. But it's also easy to forget the human side when transfers come along. And Declan Rice has a very young family and he can if he plays for Arsenal, he can stay he can stay living he can stay in the situation he's in. He can stay in the Premier League, which is he's grown up watching and being in the Premier League as part of a team that Mikel Arteta is trying to now 
evolve to maintain that title challenge and to get to FA Cup finals. And of course, you go to Arsenal, you are playing in the Champions League as well. So I, I suspect it, it it stays the same. I suspect he sticks with Arsenal, but it's a, it's a nice spanner to have been put in the works <laughs> by Tommy T. Absolutely. Okay, Tom Rolly, uh, Gregor Robertson, thank you very much for being with me. Molly and I are going to continue our conversation uh, as we look at Serena Wiegmann's uh, Lionesses World Cup squad. As Molly and I take a look at Serena Wiegmann's Lionesses World Cup squad, interesting headlines from it, Molly. Um, the Euro 2022 top scorer Beth Mead not included. She hasn't fully recovered from her anterior cruciate ligament injury which we did expect but the Spurs striker Beth England hasn't been involved since last summer is included scoring 12 goals in her past 12 WSL games the Chelsea centre-back Millie Bright has been out with a knee injury since March she's made the squad and Serena Wiegmann says that Bright will captain the team in the absence of the injured defender Leah Williamson the midfielder Frank Kirby already ruled out through injury uh, but the Barcelona defender Lucy Bronze is in despite having knee surgery in April. Really, what I'm getting from that Molly is it's a squad that we could possibly be excited about in some areas, but also clearly some worries over where the team will be physically. Yeah, completely. I think it's it's a it's slightly strange build up, really, because I think having come off the the back of the Euros win last summer, I think England were, were definitely one of the favourites for the World Cup. And, you know, I, th- I, I think they still can be. I think they still are. But I think we have to be realistic, particularly with England's defence. I mean, if we go back to kind of the Phil Neville era, it was always a, a weak area for England. And it felt as though Wiegmann came in and really sorted it out she she found this partnership with Leah Williamson and Millie Bright and it, it it just worked almost perfectly now obviously that's been broken up with Williamson's injury and then you end up with a weakness at centre back obviously Millie Bright who has been named as captain but Wiegmann hasn't even told her that she's captain because she's been focusing on her rehab and she really does have a bit of a race against time to be fit for that first game she she's she's not back in team training yet. Hopefully she will be by that game on the 22nd of July. But either way, she won't be, you know, fully match fit. She won't have had a lot of minutes behind her. Then you have left back, which is a real problem area for England because your left back of the Euros is England's scorer this season, is absolutely flying as a striker. So... I think what England have is a very, very, very exciting front line. I was really happy for Beth England, who made the move from Chelsea to Tottenham, who were battling relegation the whole season. She's pretty much single-handedly kept them up. Everyone I speak to is saying what a fantastic character she is to have in the dressing room. She's really knuckled down, worked hard, and she just looked as though she wasn't a Wiegmann kind of player. Wiegmann just just wasn't really interested in the last camp when we all thought she would go. So I think credit to Wiegmann, she's she's basically said to us yesterday that she couldn't not pick her. Beth England has been so good for Tottenham. And I think what England have to try and do is is maximise their attacking talent. Obviously, we haven't even mentioned Alessia Russo, 
who was who was so fantastic in the Euros and has, has been doing well for Manchester United this season. So there you've got three out-and-out strikers who are all in fantastic form. And we don't even have one left-back that's, that's kind of in form or a proper left-back. All of the options are pretty much makeshift players that can play sort of across the back line. So I think... Vigman's really going to have a task on our hands to try and extract the most she possibly can out of the players that are in form and doing well and just kind of keep keep the uh, the uh, attention away from, from that left-back slash the defence generally. It's going to be an intriguing one for England this World Cup. I think some of the injuries, maybe some feel that kind of takes England's chance away of really winning this tournament. You think of the creative and goal-scoring abilities of Mead and Kirby, the leadership of Williamson as well. Um, do, do you believe that once you've seen this squad, you sit back and say, OK, we've got a chance, or is it one of those where it's almost a hit and hope? I think England have a chance, and I think part of that comes down to some of the issues that are almost having the other nations. I think what what we all know is men's or women's football, to win a tournament you need everything to go pretty much perfect for you. And that's exactly what happened in the Euros last summer. They got through the entire tournament without really an injury of note. Wiegmann was allowed to play the same 11 players that started every match. It kind of went very straightforward. I think that that won't be the case this summer. But I think you you look at America, who are obviously the reigning champions, probably the favourites just because it's America and it's a World Cup and they always win. But but it hasn't been really straightforward for them under Vlatko Andonowski, their manager. I think there's there's a feeling that that's a squad in transition that maybe isn't as strong as perhaps US teams have been in the past. We know Spain, who have absolutely ridiculous, quite frankly, talent, but several of them may not play in the tournament because there's this ongoing falling out with Jorge Vilda, their manager, and the Spanish Federation. France are something of a unknown under Irv Renard. Again, very new, kind of coming into an environment that's that's been a bit of a mess with the French Federation. So I think there's we might be looking here at a scenario of Germany who we could meet in the quarterfinal, perhaps being the most settled and well-rounded team in this tournament. So I think England need to really build into it. They've got a really favourable group, um, Haiti, China and Denmark. You know, England should be flying through that really if they have any hope of of winning this thing. And then it gets very difficult very quickly. You're you're looking at a round of 16 game either against Canada, who, who won the gold in Tokyo 2020, or you're looking at Australia, the hosts who, quite frankly, you want to avoid as, as much as you possibly can with Sam Kerr leading the line. So I think that becomes difficult. And then you're looking at quarterfinal with Germany. So it could be a very difficult route for England. And I think, I suppose that does mirror a little bit of what we saw last summer because we all looked at that quarterfinal with Spain as one where easily England could have lost. Obviously, it ended up going to extra time and they won it. And then after that, it was like, well, they're probably going to win now. And I think it'll be very much the same situation where that Germany quarterfinal, if that is the way that it that it does end up playing out, could well be almost the final when, when you look at the strengths and weaknesses of the other teams in the competition. But I have to say I do I do I do worry for our defence. Finally, it's just one more point about the Women's World Cup that I do need to raise. At this point in time, the five biggest European nations 
haven't yet signed a TV deal, um, including us, um, to broadcast it this summer. And it's hurtling towards us. I mean, we are not far away from this World Cup at all. I think under 50 days now. What is going on and how big a concern is this going to be? To be frank, there's a lot of issues that are a mess right now in women's football relating to this Women's World Cup. We have the ongoing scheduling issue where clubs are not willing to release players until the 23rd of June and England want to start their camp on the 19th of June. So as of yet, we have no start date for the camp because the negotiations are continuing. Whether they can start on the 19th or the 23rd affects whether England will be even able to have a send-off game. That's up in the air. We have no broadcast deal. We have no idea as to whether the One Love armbands are going to be able to be worn. England have been in talks with FIFA for literally months since before Christmas. This has been going on. A decision still hasn't been made. And uh, I certainly got the sense of frustration from Serena Wiegmann yesterday at the squad announcement. There's just so much up in the air and kind of the FA's best laid plans, I suppose, of uh, uh, just completely wrecked, really. I think of those three issues, I think the TV deal actually is possibly the easiest to solve. We we understand the BBC and ITV are, are in discussions to try and split the fixtures. And I think of those European nations you mentioned, I think England are in a slightly better place than the others. So I think the broadcasters are fairly optimistic that they will get something sorted. But obviously, it's not ideal. Obviously, uh, FIFA are are playing hardball with this. They want to get as much money as they possibly can, despite perhaps not recognising that this is a tournament in Australia. It's not going to be prime broadcast times when these games are going to be like early in the morning. I think it's sort of 9 or 10 a.m. over here is when they're going to kick off. So there's, to be honest, Hugh, there's a lot of things that are a mess at the moment. And uh, as you say, I think I think today is 49 days out. And uh, I think certainly Serena Wiegmann is just hoping that all of these people can get in a room, make these decisions, because it's just really affecting preparation at this point. Okay, Molly Hudson, thank you for being with me on the Game Podcast. Thanks to Gregor Robertson and Tom Ruddy once again, and to all of you for listening. Big FA Cup final ahead of us this weekend. We're going to have all the reaction uh, on Monday to that. All of the big stories as well as we build up to West Ham and Europa Conference League final and Manchester City in a Champions League final too. So make sure you're with us on Monday. You won't miss an episode. Just hit the bell, the notification button there, or make sure you're subscribed. You can go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game and if you want to read that it's in the paper each and every Monday we'll see you then take care